Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, a short passage of Scripture today. We are continuing our series called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. This is a, a walk through the life of Jesus Christ, verse by verse. Of course, we are going from gospel to gospel because not all the gospel writers wrote the events of Jesus' life in the same order. Some included some events that others didn't include, and we want to cover it all. We want to look at the whole life of Christ. Therefore, we are doing this verse by verse, but we are also doing it in a, in a way that we are harmonizing the Gospels. So today we are in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. And when we began this series about a year ago now, Deemer and I were really praying about what we needed at Harbin's and where the Lord was leading us at Harbin's. And, and during that time, we were, I think, experiencing a period of, of well, for lack of a better phrase, joylessness. A very dry period, and um, we felt that sort of the driving emphasis behind the series was that if we'll see and savor Christ more fully, we'll worship Him more rightly. That was the driving emphasis behind this. And and I will tell you, a year ago, not too far after, maybe a little bit less than a year ago, was a fairly down point in my own personal life as a pastor. Like I said, we were experiencing a very dry time, and we began to preach this series and. All I can say is that the Lord has blessed in extraordinary ways. And the Lord has begun to stir something up in Harbin's that, by all means, no one here can take credit for. That the Holy Spirit has decided to, to do something. And so I, I believe that we need to continue this series as we just see and savor Christ and we want to worship Him more rightly. Now, like I said, today's text is a small one. So go ahead and stand up, if you will. Mark chapter 1. We're going to read these two verses. This is the authoritative word of God, written down by John Mark, who probably was writing down uh, the gospel as taught by the Apostle Peter. And these words carry the same authority as if Jesus were standing here, right here in the flesh, speaking to us. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to understand what these words mean. We want to understand what Jesus was proclaiming when he went from town to town, village to village, synagogue to synagogue, proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. So God, help us to understand, because I'll be honest, Lord, I, I feel so inadequate to discuss this topic this morning, to, to preach this passage. But God, I praise you that your power is made perfect in our weakness. I'm a weak preacher. Those in here are weak listeners. So that if anything good comes from this, we praise Jesus, because his power is made perfect in this service today. So God, we ask you to come to move and to speak to us as you see fit through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As we get started this morning, I wanted to have an illustration. And I, I took this out of my office. Children, any idea what this is? A what? A camera. Right. It's a camera. This is what type of camera? All right. We call it a Polaroid. This is actually made by Kodak. It's a Kodak Colorburst 100, the Kodak Instant Camera. Now, I don't know all the 
the story behind the... Someone was telling me that a Kodak and Polaroid came out with the same type of camera, something at the same time, and then Polaroid sued Kodak for copyright infringement or whatever. So these became known as Polaroid cameras. Now, kids in here have any idea how a Polaroid camera works? You would take this cartridge, and you'd shove it in here, and that cartridge may have, I don't know, maybe 10 pictures in it. And you shut this, and you'd then take the picture, and the picture would come out of the bottom of the camera, or in the front of the camera, depending on the design that, that you had. And, uh, and then you couldn't see it yet. It was there, but it wasn't there. So you take that little picture, and I don't know if this helps speed it up or not, but you start doing this, right? Okay. okay. Hold on. It's coming. All right? Or as my mom would do, it's not wet. I don't know what, I don't know if that was in the instructions that you're supposed to do that or not, but that's, that's what we would do. And as kids, I, I loved it. You sit there and you stare at this, all of a sudden the picture would start emerging, wouldn't it? And you see you or whoever it was you took a picture of. And, you know, you'd really be disappointed if it was blurry. Like, oh, got to do all that. Everybody get back in place. We got to take it again. After waiting for so long for it to come. And I don't remember how long it would take. But it seemed like an eternity when you're really, really, really wanting to see the picture. And, of course, our kids today, I mean, we take pictures on our phones, which would have sounded like an insane phrase to say only 10 years ago. You're taking a picture on your phone? Anyway, and you would take our picture and, come on! How come this thing isn't uploading yet? But back then, you know, you had to actually wait. Now, I, I, I'm using this as simply an illustration because as Jesus comes and he announces that the kingdom of God is at hand, I believe the scriptures teach a teaching of the end times and the coming of the kingdom that's an already not yet reality. In other words, Jesus has come and he's established the kingdom. So it's kind of like the, the picture has been taken... And now we are in the age between when it's been established and inaugurated and when it's going to be consummated. The second coming of Christ, the return of Christ in the kingdom of God will be finally and fully brought into existence. It's like waiting for that picture to emerge. So here we are in the church age and we're thinking about the kingdom of God and we're sitting there, okay, when's it going to happen? And and what we need to do is look at the scriptures to understand what this kingdom is anyway. Because the concept of the kingdom of God, to be honest with you, is a confusing concept for a lot of people. And I believe there's a lot of misunderstandings out there regarding the nature of the kingdom of God. Now, in this short passage here, um, this is apparently after John the Baptist has been arrested. So sometime between Jesus or at the same time Jesus was leaving Judea to come up to his, his hometown of Nazareth in the area of Galilee, John the Baptist is arrested. As we looked at last week in Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes to his hometown, but he's going throughout the whole region, synagogue to synagogue, preaching. And as he comes to his hometown and he preaches to them the messianic uh, mission that he has, he is rejected by his hometown people there in Nazareth. But Jesus continues his Galilean ministry of proclaiming the gospel of God. And according to Mark, the gospel of God that Jesus is proclaiming is this. This is a summary statement, if you will, of what Jesus is preaching. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now Matthew chapter 4 has a similar statement. Uh, It says, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in both statements, we see that Jesus' public preaching and teaching ministry involved the proclamation of the kingdom of God, or as Matthew puts it, the kingdom of heaven. And I'm standing here today saying that those two are interchangeable. There are some who don't believe they are, but I believe they are. The kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, same thing. He is saying that the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning it's realized, it's arrived, it's here, it's breaking in. But what is this kingdom of God? The word kingdom, basileia, is used 162 times in the New Testament. Therefore, I think we need to see that the kingdom, the concept of kingdom and kingdom of God is important. But I also believe the concept, the teaching of the kingdom of God is highly misunderstood today. You'll find a lot of answers to the question, what is the kingdom of God? You in here probably have quite a few different answers. What is the kingdom of God? And so I want us to consider that question today. And, you know, even the the disciples in Acts chapter 1 verse 6 showed that they initially had some confusion about the kingdom. And I think that confusion was cleared up as the the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and and teaches them and shows them all that Jesus was teaching and how all the scriptures pointed to Jesus. But but they, in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They were confused as to how the kingdom of God was coming. And so there's a lot of confusion in the church today as well. And, and I think that's to be understood because as we look at even Jesus' words about the kingdom, we see a lot of different things. For example, the kingdom is spoken of as something we inherit. Matthew 25, 34. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So it's, it's spoken of as something we inherit, but the kingdom is also spoken of as something we enter into. Matthew 18, 3. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is also spoken of something to be found. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The kingdom of heaven is spoken as something to be sought after. Matthew six thirty three. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The kingdom of God is spoken of as something that is in the process of growing. Matthew 13, 31. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. The kingdom of God is spoken of as something that is in the midst of us. Luke seventeen twenty one. Nor shall they say, look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's also spoken of something yet to come. Matthew 26, 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Yet here in today's passage, it is spoken of as something already here. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what are we to make of all these different references about the kingdom? Is there an understanding of the kingdom that will bring a unifying sense to all the aforementioned verses? And I believe there is. More than that, I believe that a proper understanding of the kingdom is key to seeing the unity of the whole scriptures as one story. For the whole Bible is one story about one God creating and saving one people through one mediator. But we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here. Today I want to ask us two questions to sort of guide us this morning. 
Number one, what is the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming? And number two, how does one come into the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming? Now before we go there though, let me just clarify a few things and give you a few things that the kingdom of God is not. First of all, the kingdom of God does not simply refer to an ideal moral order or an ethical ideal. In today's culture, especially in more liberal-minded churches or some of the emergent churches, the thought is that the kingdom of God is simply to do social good. And so if you're out digging wells for orphanages in Liberia, you are doing kingdom work. And so you hear that phrase used a lot. Oh, let's go do kingdom work, kingdom work, kingdom work. And that creates a very confusing thing for people because it's the kingdom about doing social good. And I would say that no, that's not the message of the kingdom. That's not primarily what the kingdom is about. Now, the outflow of the kingdom of God manifest on the earth may be those things, but the work of the kingdom is directly tied to the gospel being proclaimed. So it's not simply some ideal moral order. The kingdom of God is not simply a synonym for God's sovereignty. Well, it just means God's in control. It's not a synonym for God's sovereignty. Now, God is sovereign and he does rule. We'll talk about that. But kingdom of God isn't just a synonym for that. The kingdom of God is not simply Jesus reigning in our hearts. The kingdom is here, right here, in my heart. Jesus rules. Now, I know we like to talk that way. But I think a lot of times we confuse the person and work of Jesus Christ with the presence of his spirit in his people and the indwelling word of Christ in his people. We get that mixed up because the kingdom of God isn't about is Jesus sitting on the throne of your heart. It's not what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is also not the exact same thing as the church. We need to be clear about that. Although the church and the kingdom are closely and inseparably tied together and related, it is a confusion of categories to make them synonyms. So, what is this kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming? As I said a minute ago, it's popular today to refer to the kingdom of God simply as God's rule or God's reign. And at its simplest, that's true. If you're familiar with George Eldon Ladd's works, he he talks about how the kingdom of God is primarily the the reign of God. And, And at its simplest, that's true. But when we consider the whole of Scripture, I think we need to expand that definition. You see, some have tried to reduce the kingdom of God simply to some sort of dynamic rule that isn't tied to any specific realm or location. But the scriptures always speak of God ruling somewhere, even if that somewhere is everywhere. So let me offer up this definition. And and I've been heavily influenced, I'll tell you, by the work of Graham Goldsworthy. And let me give you this definition of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. And I believe that this skeletal structure of the kingdom can be seen throughout the entire scripture. And it brings a unifying sense to the entire scripture from Genesis 1-1 all the way to Revelation 22-21. The whole Bible is a cohesive story about God's active rule from creation to new creation. Now the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is not used in the Old Testament. But we clearly see the concept of the kingdom pervading the entire storyline of the Old Testament scriptures setting the stage for the New Testament. Setting the stage for its fulfillment in the New Testament. If the kingdom of God 
is a central concept, as I'm saying it is, from the beginning to the end of Scriptures. And if what we read about Jesus and Luke is true, and that is that Moses and all the prophets and all the Scriptures are about him, then we must conclude that the teaching of the kingdom of God is inescapably tied to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying that much when he says what he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus says fulfilled here in this passage, he's using a term that's usually referred to, that's usually only applied to, to prophecy. And he's saying the time is fulfilled. He's on the scene. He's beginning his ministry of proclamation. And he's saying that in himself and in this message that he is preaching, all of time is being fulfilled. Not only prophecies from the Old Testament, but all of history Everything that God has been doing in the cosmos from the beginning of time, all the meaning in history, all of it, all the story, it's finding its fulfillment in Jesus right there as he proclaims the gospel. That's why he says the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is saying that all of God's work in history, as spoken to us in the Old Testament, had a meaning and a purpose that's found its fulfillment in the arrival of the kingdom, namely through himself. He's on the stage, now the kingdom is here. The person and work of Jesus was itself what time had been pointing to. He himself is the fulfillment of the Old Testament signs and symbols and shadows, predictions, promises, and prophecies. He himself, his person and his work, was ushering in the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. God's people in God's place under God's rule. Galatians 4.4 says... When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So, so for the rest of the service today, we're going to look at the storyline of Scripture and see the kingdom of God in the storyline of Scripture. I believe it's a central concept of the Scriptures. Now, you may say, wait, I think covenant is the central concept of the Scriptures. Well, they're tied together. The covenants of God are his divine promises. The kingdom of God is his divine rule. And they go hand in hand. So the first thing I want us to see in your notes there is the pattern of the kingdom is established. And we see this in the Garden of Eden. The first thing you see is that a pattern of kingdom is established in Genesis 1 and 2. God is sovereign over all. He exists outside of created order. So he creates the world ex nihilo. He is a reigning and ruling God. And he creates for himself a people, Adam and Eve. And he gives all of creation to their care as sort of vice regents. He gives them a perfect place. He's their people. He gives them a perfect place called the Garden of Eden. And there with them, he rules the world. So he is ruling. It is God's people in God's place under God's rule. But we know the rest of the story. They were not satisfied with their role of imaging God by ruling over creation in his name and for his glory. They were not satisfied with spreading God's glory over the face of the earth. They sought their own glory. And when tempted by Satan, they willfully became co-conspirators with Satan to usurp God's throne. They betrayed the ruler of the universe by trying to rule the universe. But God will not be deposed. He still reigns. And so judgment came, what we call the fall. The kingdom pattern was established in the garden, but it was marred by sin. 
And God would not have been unjust to simply wipe out all of mankind and destroy creation all at once. But his purposes and his thoughts were so higher than man could have ever grasped. And that though man had fallen and had received the due penalty of their sin, death, in the middle of the curse was grace because God had a plan for a kingdom that couldn't be thwarted by man's sinfulness. So in the curse, there's grace. And the next thing we see in the biblical storyline, we have the pattern of the kingdom established. The next thing we see, the restored kingdom is promised. The restored kingdom is promised. The fall meant that God would have to rectify things. He would have to restore things. And so he begins to give promises of a restored kingdom to his people. And the very first one is in Genesis 3, verse 15. The very first promise of a restored kingdom. That, that the seed of the woman would, would bruise the head of the, of the seed of the serpent. And so the promises are beginning to be made. That God would restore the kingdom as he desired it to be. God's people and God's place under the perfect rule of God. And the scriptures would eventually lead us to a man named Abram. And God made kingdom promises to Abraham. Changed his name to Abraham. Makes kingdom promises to him in Genesis 17, 5. No longer shall your name be called Abraham. What is God demonstrating there? I'm still the ruler here. No longer will your name be called Abraham. I can change who you are, Abram. You're now Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations. And kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. Throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. God's people. God's place under God's rule. You see the theme continuing throughout Scripture? God's people, God's place, God's rule. The kingdom would be restored. What a promise. Now Abraham would never see this with his physical eyes. He could only see it with the eyes of faith. And so the story continues. There's Abraham, then there's Isaac, then there's Jacob, whom God would name, rename Israel. And God, in a demonstration of his absolute sovereignty over this whole process takes what men meant for evil and he purposes it for good, gets Joseph to Egypt and brings his whole people to Egypt so they can survive and they can multiply and they blossom into a nation of millions there in Egypt. And so the story goes on. And it goes on from the pattern of the kingdom being established and then the restored kingdom being promised. And the next thing we see in the history of the Old Testament is the perfect kingdom is foreshadowed. God sends Moses to deliver his people and to take his people to his place. He demonstrates his sovereign rule over the nations by humiliating and judging Egypt, by hardening Pharaoh's heart and using that hardening to proclaim his name to other nations far away. God demonstrates his rule and he's bringing his people into his place to be under his rule. Leviticus 26, 12, And I will walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people. God's people, God's place, God's rule. God establishes a law so his people can be holy as he is holy. He establishes a tabernacle where he can dwell with his people. And he establishes himself as their king. But the people can only get a glimpse of the kingdom because they're sinners. And they are lawbreakers. And they need priests to intercede for them between them and God. And they need blood of goats and, and lambs and bulls to be spilt. 
because of their sin. But none of that was sufficient. It was all shadows. It was all pointing to something much greater. It wasn't the complete fulfillment of the perfect kingdom of God. But God takes his people to a specific place, the promised land. And it was all a foreshadowing of something much greater yet to come. But the people throughout the process, they still demonstrated that they were like their father Adam. And they rebelled. They even rebelled to the point that they rejected God as their king. And they wanted a human king. Give us a human king, God, like all the other nations around us. We want a, we want a person that we can see. But God is sovereign over the sin of men. And he uses their sinful desires to give them a king. And in giving them a king, he is establishing his kingdom. He gives them what their sinful desires want. But he rules over that, too. So, he gives them a king. And and he says to the second king that Israel had, King David, in 2 Samuel 7, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And this was only partially fulfilled in David's son Solomon. It had a greater fulfillment in another son who was to come. Matter of fact, you notice Solomon is never used as a type or a symbol in the New Testament. Why? Because Solomon wasn't the fulfillment of this verse. Jesus was. And so, Solomon comes. He builds the temple. Again, God's place where he dwells among his people, but it was simply a shadow of something greater to come. Not long after the temple was built, the people of God, because of their sin and their rebellion, would be torn in two, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and kings would come and go, and people would demonstrate that they they hate this God that they say they love. They don't want to be under his rule. And so God judges his people again, and he takes them from his place. And puts them under the rule of pagan kings. But the prophets would come and they would write. And they would speak of a a restoration. A reestablished kingdom. A new king under a new covenant. A foreshadowing of a kingdom that was going to be perfect. Israel had failed because of their sin. But now when this new kingdom would come, it would be a perfect kingdom without the possibility of failure. An eternal kingdom consisting of God's people, always with God in his place, always under God's rule. And so the people came out of the lands that they had been exiled to, and they waited. And they waited. Which brings us to Jesus. This is all the Old Testament pointing to the coming of the kingdom. The new kingdom now in Jesus is at hand. The new kingdom is at hand. In the person and work of Jesus, the kingdom has now arrived. My friends, Jesus wasn't just now on the scene to usher in the kingdom. Jesus was now on the scene as the fulfillment of the kingdom. He himself, his person, his work is the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus comes to represent the people of God. He is God's people. 
He stands in our place as the new Adam, 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 5 teach us. He was also the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3. He is the offspring singular of Abraham, Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. Therefore Jesus himself is the true Israel of God. He too was called out of Egypt in Matthew 2.15. He was tempted in the wilderness yet without sin. He is the substitute. Like his people in every respect yet without sin. He is the perfect person of God standing in the place representing all the people of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of the kingdom. And Jesus not only represents the people of God, but he himself is the place where God and man meet. He is the people of God. He's also the place of God. He is the place where God and man meet. He is the new tabernacle. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He is the new temple. John 2, 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He is the new mountain of God, John 4, 21. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here, already not yet by the way. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Jesus is now the center of true worship. He is the place where God and man meet. He is Emmanuel. God with us. This is the glorious truth of the doctrine of the incarnation. That Jesus is both 100% man and 100% God. There is unity but not fusion of his two natures. And there is distinction, but not separation. Jesus himself, therefore, is the perfect relationship between God and man in his incarnation. The hypostatic union of God and man in Jesus is the perfect union of God the creator with his creatures, man. That's where it is. In Jesus. So as we are united to Christ by faith, we are folded into that relationship. You will never be close enough to God in order to be known by God. But Christ is and was and always will be. And when you're united to him, that's when you have a relationship with God that will never cease and will be perfect. United to Christ by faith. We ourselves could not have that perfect relationship due to our sin. We could not be in the presence of God. But Christ, our mediator, our high priest, has offered up his own blood so that our sins might be forgiven. And has given us his perfect spotless righteousness so that we might dwell with God. And so by faith we are enjoined to him, united to him. So now united to the God-man, we mere men can be with God forever. What a glorious truth. God's people, God's place. Jesus didn't just bring in the kingdom through his role as Savior. He is the kingdom. Without him, there is no kingdom. The kingdom is all about Jesus. And finally, not only is Jesus the people of God, the place of God, Jesus is also God's absolute authoritative rule over the universe. In the person of Jesus, he is the ruler of the universe. For he himself is the righteous king. First, he is the king promised from the line of David, as we mentioned in Samuel 7. But he's so much more. For Paul shows us that he is the preeminent king of the cosmos, Colossians 1. 
He is the image of the invisible God. Listen to these words. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We see that Jesus himself, in his person and in his work, was God's plan for the fullness of time. Ephesians 1.10, God's plan for the fullness of time was to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We are so stupid to think that the gospel's about us. We get benefits that flow out of the gospel, but it's all about Christ. It's all about him. Because of his finished work, God exalted him to the highest place. It's almost as if Jesus himself is not only the architect of all of creation, but also the blueprint. <laughs> He's the architect and the blueprint of all creation. Paul himself would say later in Romans eleven thirty six, for from him and through him and to him are all things. I mean, you can't say much more than that. To him be glory forever. Amen. Philippians 2 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And amazingly, Scripture teaches us that if we are united to him by faith, we too are exalted and made co-heirs. Does that not blow you away? It says in Ephesians 2, 6, we read that God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We are in the kingdom of God, but we are sitting right beside the king in heaven. We've been exalted. Not because of anything we've done, but because we've been united to the one who deserves to sit on the throne. It's mind-blowing. I felt like my brain was coming out of my ears last night as I prepared the sermon. The kingdom of God, then, is the good news. That the right rule of God and the right rule of man, a rule that our ancestor Adam lost, have come together in the right rule of the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. In his sin-resisting life, his wisdom-saturated teaching, his sickness-destroying power, his demon-exercising authority, his substitutionary, conquering, wrath-absorbing death, his justifying, victorious, righteousness-demonstrating resurrection, he has proven that he is king forever. And it is good news for us because when we are united to him by faith, we are under the new covenant of his blood. That's what we're going to be celebrating here in just a few minutes. And we then are brought into the kingdom. Do you see how digging wells in Africa is such an insufficient way to talk about the kingdom of God? It just doesn't do it justice. Nor is it just to say, well, it's just God's rule over the universe. And he rules in the hearts of his people. Friends, that's not sufficient. We must also, though, see what the disciples couldn't see in Acts 1-6. And that is that this kingdom is an already not yet reality. It's the Polaroid, right? 
It's been inaugurated in the person and work of Christ. It's done. It's a done deal. But Christ is coming back, and that's when we'll see the final step here. The final kingdom is consummated. The final kingdom is consummated. So the pattern of the kingdom was established in Eden. The restoration of the kingdom was then promised. The perfect kingdom was foreshadowed throughout the entire, all the kings and all the, all the, all the sacrifices. All of that was foreshadowing a greater kingdom. The new kingdom was at hand when Jesus arrived on the scene. And we look forward in great anticipation the final kingdom is going to be consummated. And I wish I had more time. I don't. Because we could probably spend a lot more time just talking about this final point. The kingdom has come in Christ. The end times have begun. None of this other stuff is needed anymore. If Christ is the consummation of the kingdom, then we don't need the shadows anymore, and we never will. They're done. We're just waiting for him to return. And when he returns, that kingdom that has only partially been breaking in right now will be fully seen. Death and sin have been defeated, but the victory lap hasn't been run yet. So we wait. He will return, and he will establish the new heavens and the new earth. Have you ever wondered why, why Revelation is so similar to Genesis? <laughs> Revelation talks about a new creation. It's Eden being created all over again, perfectly, without the possibility of failure this time. The new creation has begun already, though, in the hearts of his people. For when you Receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, you become what? A new creation. The new heavens and the new earth have begun when my silly old hard heart became a heart of flesh. In an instant when the Holy Spirit said, believe. Boom, boom, boom. My heart began to beat with spiritual life for the first time. New creation. And that's happening around the globe. Richie is going to India to preach the gospel of the kingdom so that as the gospel is preached, it will penetrate hearts and hearts will burst into life so that all of a sudden more new creation is popping up all over the place until the day that Christ returns and calls us all to himself and the whole world is transformed. And it was all pointing to him. But until that day, we keep preaching We keep preaching what Jesus preached. And it wasn't go dig wells. It was repent and believe. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent. So how does one come into the kingdom? That was my second question. I kind of skipped over it. Second question, how does one come into the kingdom? Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn from yourself. Turn to Christ alone. You must see that you are a child of Adam. You are an insurrectionist. You have rejected the true king, and you have tried to rule in his place. There are those of you out here right now that are trying to rule in the place of God, whether you realize it or not, and you need to bow your knee to the king. You need to turn from your sin, and you deserve hell. But you can turn, and you can be saved by believing. Repent and believe. Put all your faith, put all your hope in Christ alone. You have to believe in who Christ is and what he has done. The person and work of Christ, which means you believe the gospel. The gospel proclaims that he is your substitute. For you never could be the people of God. For God requires that his people be holy as he is holy. You can't be the people of God because you've inherited a sinful nature and guilt from Adam. That's, that's on your hands. 
the blood of Adam is on your hands as well. And so, you are to repent, to believe. Believe that Christ stands in the place as your substitute. He was the only one who could be holy as his heavenly Father was holy. And believe that Christ stood in your place. Believe that he is the God-man and only through him can you have fellowship with God. He is the meeting place between God and man. You believe that he is the king, he is the Lord, and therefore your belief leads you to surrender. You cannot believe the Jesus of the Bible and not surrender to him as Lord. It's that simple. If you say, ah, yeah, I believe in Jesus, I just don't get into all this submitting to him as Lord. Or I I accepted him as Savior, and someday I'll accept him as Lord. You accepted a Jesus of your own making, an idol. And you will never accept him as Lord until you bow your knee to the true Jesus of Scripture. Savior and Lord go together. You can't have one or the other. That's not how it works. Believe the Bible, submit to Christ. That's how one comes into the kingdom. Coming into the kingdom is synonymous with being saved or inheriting eternal life in the scriptures. So to preach the gospel means we're preaching the kingdom, and we're preaching to preach the kingdom means we're preaching the work, the person and work of Jesus Christ. For he, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So so what is the church then? Well, the church is God's people on earth demonstrating the kingdom of God at work. But it's it's not the same thing. It's where the kingdom of God is shown to the world at work. It should be. It's in the church. But friends, this morning, I want you to consider the claims of Jesus. That he he is the people of God you couldn't be. He is the place of God where God and man come together and meet. And he is the ruling and reigning king, God himself. Submit to the king today. Believe in the gospel and be saved. Bow our heads and close our eyes. Heavenly Father, I just pray, Lord, for your, your mercy and your grace upon our time now as we begin to get ready to partake of the Lord's Supper Heavenly Father, I just want to uh, ask your forgiveness for any uh, missteps on my part in the message today. And just pray, Lord, that you would use your word because the power is in your word and it's not in me. And God, as we do this celebration of the Lord's Supper and this remembrance, this is a powerful symbol. But in and of itself, there's no power in this juice and there's no power in this bread. Lord, I pray that there be no one here that's putting their hope in religious rituals But instead, that they would see what this points to. It points to the finished work of Christ. And God, we praise you and thank you for who you are. We thank you for the new covenant in your blood that has been established. A new people. A people who will be holy as you are holy, not because of our own merits, but because of Christ. A people brought near to you through Christ. United to Christ. And therefore... Closer to you than we could ever imagine. And a people who will one day rule with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. Not because we deserve it. Because you decided to take rebel insurrectionists and turn them into vice regents of your new creation. What mercy and what grace. 
you have demonstrated to us. And Lord, if there be anyone here who has not embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, I pray, Lord, that today they would. Lord, I know that a lot of what we talked about today was perhaps a, a little steep. But Lord, it's pretty simple. Repent and believe. You don't have to understand all the ins and outs of the kingdom to come into the kingdom. You've got to repent and believe in the gospel. So I pray that people here who do not know you would repent and believe this morning. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.